Welcome to On Mike, conversations from Northgate Hall, home of the University of California, Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. I'm Ed Wasserman, Dean of the School. As one of the nation's top journalism programs, we regularly invite the world's best reporters, writers, and documentarians to talk about the stories behind their stories. This week, journalist Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan holds the John S. and James L. Knight Chair in Science Journalism at the school, and he's author of a number of bestsellers, including The Omnivore's Dilemma. In today's episode, lecturer Deirdre English sits down with Pollan to discuss his latest book, How to Change Your Mind, what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. That you can really sink down into your own thing and not worry about anybody else, not worry about your body, not worry about the, you know, the doorbell ringing. Um, they, you know, to use the lingo of the time, they create a safe space. And, uh, and you need a safe space if you're going to put down all your normal defenses. It's on mic, Deirdre English, in conversation with Michael Pollan. You have been off writing this book, and I will tell you, I just finished it, and your book is a trip. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Super trippy experience to to read it. Um, and uh, I really applaud you uh, for w- many things. We'll be covering them. But, you know, first for your courage uh, because you had to overcome some fears. I did. I wasn't a natural psychonaut. You know, I'm not somebody – I'm more a product of the moral panic against psychedelics <laughs> than I am of the psychedelic 60s. I was a little young at peak – you know, I was 12 during the Summer of Love. So I wasn't, uh, by the time the idea of taking psychedelics entered, entered my conscious awareness, they were really scary. There were horror stories in the media. There was a moral panic about it. And um, so I was uh, too terrified to, uh, to indulge. I remember being in uh, high school in 10th grade and writing a short story for an English class that consisted essentially of the worst trip I could imagine that ended with this poor, poor schmuck <laughs> slitting his wrists uh, with a piece of a shard of glass. I mean, that's like, that's what psychedelics were to me. And uh, so to to delve into this world now, I had to overcome a lot of reluctance many of many different kinds, the reluctance of uh, the drugs and the scariness of the experience. So you, so you had never done it. Uh, I mean, that's not quite true. I had had a couple experiences with magic mushrooms in my late twenties. Um, a friend had given us a jar of them, and uh, I remember two experiences in particular. One, very pleasant in the country with my wife, Judith, uh, in the woods um, by a pond. And then another really kind of uncomfortable one in Riverside Park in Manhattan on a, on a Saturday where we spent my whole time wondering if other people could tell I was high. And um, so it's kind of a paranoid experience. But in retrospect, having had a, for the book a kind of very high-dose, ego-dissolving experience, those were, those were what uh, aficionados would call aesthetic experiences, you know, where everything was kind of lit up a little bit. Uh, reality was italicized, but it wasn't fundamentally altered. Um, so, no, I hadn't had a big trip until, uh, you know, my late 50s. Um, so I and came it's... late to it. And But I had other forms of reluctance, too. There was the reluctance of, like, this community and the whole new aginess of it and the kind of lingo people used and the kind of music they played. This was all like, ooh. You know, I wasn't comfortable with that either. And um, so there were a lot of things to get over to do this. Um, on the other hand, I, I kind of think... There are advantages to having waited this long. Um, 
you know, as a journalist, uh, there, I think there's a great value in doing things for the first time that that you can describe them with a kind of sense of wonder and notice things that someone who had done it many, many times no longer notices. That's interesting because sight, it may be that, you know, you had honed your skills as an observer, as a compiler of data, and as a describer, you know, uh, that allows you to be so descriptive and articulate about these these trips. You know, there's a tremendous effort in this book to render in words. Yeah, that was the big literary challenge. You know, this is supposedly ineffable. Yeah. So how the hell do you eff it? So perhaps... <laughs> <laughs> I, I worked very hard on that. Yeah, you did. And you, you, really, you really get there. I'm going to ask you to read a fairly long section that I think very beautifully describes um, your um, magic mushrooms in the country um, at, at your old cabin. Uh, in a little while, we'll do that. But um, I, I take your point that perhaps you had developed a certain, can we call it an ego strength, um, that would allow you to do what you do in this book, which is to go back and forth, back and forth, between dissolving the ego mm. and asserting, if not the ego, asserting the um, cerebral powers of um, of uh, investigation and description. Well, there are many narrative modes in this book, and I really like that when I'm writing a nonfiction book. The thing that turns me off to a lot of nonfiction is it's written in the same kind of, mm, you know, <laughs> mode. It kind of finds its place. Is it investigative? Is it memoiristic? Whatever. And it sticks to that, and it can get a little monotonous. And I really like nonfiction that varies the, yes. the kind of focal length and also the, the, the lens. Well, so, yes, yes. So in this book, there's, you know, there's memoir, um, but that's only part of it. And then there's journalism, and then there's history, and then there's neuroscience, science writing. There's science writing, yeah. Yeah, and then case studies. And so I really like having different modes in a, in a book of nonfiction. Basically, I mean, partly because it's boring not to, but but also because I don't think any one lens has a lock, has a monopoly on the truth. Like, I don't think the scientific view necessarily tells us everything we need to know about psychedelics. You need the phenomenology, the felt experience also, really, to understand anything having to do with consciousness, since science can't penetrate it. And you have... Um, and history is, as always, I mean, any journalist learns pretty quickly that history is a great illuminator of whatever you want to uh, understand. So I'm, I'm really a believer in layering perspectives uh, to tell a story rather than, okay, I'm, I'm a science writer and that's, that's the way we tell the story. It just, I just don't think anyone is adequate when you have a complex subject like psychedelics. Yes. Well, indeed, that's what you do with this book and you layer all of these different perspectives. Um, and at the same time, you tell... Uh, you tell the story, there's a spine to the book, which is the spine of your own experiments. So you experiment a little. Well, you uh, before you experiment, you worry about it. You <laughs> you think about it. You have doubts about whether why you're going to do it. You learn ask, whatever I can, too, in advance. Lot. You know, uh, you meet the important characters uh, that have, you know, brought us to this point, you know, in putting it into historical context. And then you do it, and then you, you know, and then you react to what you did mm -hmm. and grow from it and And try on. to figure out what was going on in my brain when it happened. That's what motivates right. me to look at the neuroscience. So, yeah. So it is, it's a personal exploration. I mean, using my curiosity and my interests. Yeah. And my sense that there was, I, I, after talking to all these people who had these big experiences in the sanctioned clinical trials at NYU and Hopkins, 
the sense that they knew something I wanted to know, or they had had a kind of experience that I, I became intensely interested in having. And this just comes to one other thing that you sort of said that you had gotten a little stale yeah. in life, a little bored with yourself. Yeah, I mean, there's a you know, as you as we get older, we get a little more stuck, and we have our you know mental algorithms, and they're very good for like dealing whatever comes at us. We have our predictable reactions. We we have a box we can put any experience in. We're seldom surprised. I I, I was feeling that as I was approaching my 60th birthday, especially mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that. Um, and I had never really had what I thought of as a spiritual experience. I wasn't sure what one was, mm-hmm. and time was getting short. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. I was, so so it began as journalistic curiosity. What is this all about? Why are these people having these experiences that completely alter their perception of their mortality, mm-hmm. or their addiction, or whatever it is? But then that morphed into a more personal curiosity about you know a quest. So you said I'd never had a spiritual experience, but at the same time, you were not a spiritually inclined person. No. You, you talk about this. I mean, yeah. You're, you're not religious. Right. No. I know. I was bar mitzvahed against my will. <laughs> um. If that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Okay. Uh, no. And I, you know, it's funny. Some people who've read my work think I am spiritual, especially Botany of Desire, which is, which is a book in which the plants have a kind of active role that I, I, I give deference to their subjectivity and their agency in nature and um, but it was an intellectual conceit for me I didn't I didn't you know really believe the plants were talking to me or working on me and so I think some people thought of me that way but I didn't think of myself that way I was a, I mean I'm very much a materialist are you an agnostic an atheist I think I'm agnostic mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I, I I guess I would say which I'm, is the big I don't know yeah right it's the big I don't know and but I haven't tried very hard to find out either mm-hmm. and um not interested uh I just don't have the tools to penetrate that mystery but uh, this was an attempt to penetrate well it that was it mystery. was this is the closest mm-hmm. I got yeah. and I was and one of the things I was really struck by in the in the people I talked to is that their kind of materialistic their philosophical materialism uh, uh, was was uh, overturned in some cases that they yeah. came they came out of the experience with different ideas of what consciousness was. So, for example, it's very common among psychonauts, people who have a lot of experience of psychedelics, to conclude that um, consciousness may not be a product of our brains. Yes, it may exist out there. Yeah, as a property of the universe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, this sounds crazy at first, but there is a serious scientific and philosophical uh, theory of this, and that essentially that the brain is a is we should think of it as a radio receiver. It's tuning in consciousness rather than generating it. And so, as one of these uh, psychologists who works with psychedelics legally uh, told me, if if you want to. If you want to meet the blonde giving the news on TV, you don't look inside the TV set. <laughs> you go somewhere else. You don't look inside the brain. In yeah. Other words. yeah. And, and so they had these kind of uh, odd ideas of consciousness or, or, you know, ideas that are not common. I mean, the general assumption of science is that consciousness is a product of brains well, and only exists in our heads. Now. Right. It's remarkable how little evidence there is for that. But that's, that's the operating assumption. It's considered the more parsimonious uh, theory. But not everybody buys it. Some, think, some people think consciousness may be like energy or electromagnetic waves. You know, it's just it's, it's something out there that we somehow but make use no, of. But um, there's no strong evidence for that either. No, no. Oh, we're, I, 
anything you hear about consciousness, it's guesswork. <laughs> that's one of my takeaways. So that's why this tell is you, called the hard problem yeah, in science, right? Exactly. That, it, that it, consciousness is the hard problem. We don't know what it is. And it, we don't know whether it's intrinsic to the brain. It comes out of, you know, um, mental mechanisms, chemical mechanisms. Or it may be an emergent property of any sufficiently complex system, including a computer. I mean, I don't, I don't find that credible, but that's that's a belief that's out there. Well, that's and that's different from what you just said about that it may be a property of the universe, right? And well, that our brains may be and plants may be all receiving uh, emanations or em- from or, yeah, or, from some larger consciousness, right. borrowing it in some sense, universal cosmic consciousness, right? Okay, and that's what Aldous so, Huxley believed, and he came out of this, you know, thinking that's what was going on, mind at large. So at the beginning of this, uh, these adventures of yours, you didn't know the answer to this because nobody does. And at the, be- at the end of it, you still would say that you don't know. But I, I, I think that the shift from being certain that, that there's a material explanation for consciousness and everything else to wondering if that's really true and maybe things are more compl- complicated than I thought is a big shift. Yes. Uh, even so you, if I, it wasn't to a whole new belief system. But so I'm, you, but I'm much you, more open. You to, encountered what's called the mysterium tremendum. Yeah. That um, Otto, I think, first coined that phrase, that mm-hmm. the idea that there is some, a tremendous mystery that um, we encounter and cannot, can, only, can only experience but cannot explain. Right. Our, bl- our brains are limited. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're trying to comprehend something uh, that's bigger and more complicated than the tool we have to comprehend it with. Yeah, so Michael, I'd like to talk about mushrooms, and um, this is the crossover, of course, between my food work and my psychedelic work is mushrooms. Yeah, because they they feed your mind. They feed your mind. They feed your body. Yeah, they do. Could you please tell us uh, all what mycelium is all about? Yeah, what is it, mycel- mycelium? I didn't even know I'd seen it until I read your book, but now I know I have. Mushrooms are amazing. Uh, they're the most underappreciated kingdom of life on Earth, I think. Uh, and uh, I, got a, I got a great education in uh, mycology, the study of mushrooms, from uh, Paul Stamets. Yeah, and you do a whole profile of him. Yeah. You, by the way, in your book, there are numerous short profiles of great figures in psychedelia. And this is one. He's one of them, yeah. Paul Stamets, is, uh, he's, he's technically an amateur mycologist. He doesn't have a graduate degree, but he's revered among uh, professional mycologists for his uh, visionary understanding of mushrooms and his discovery of, certain, uh, of, of several species, including uh, a, psilocybe, uh, a psilocybin species, and also for uh, extracting mushroom compounds that have proved um, really effective as drugs, as uh, you know, antivirals and antibiotics. Remember, penicillin is a mushroom. It's a fungus. Um, so, And mushrooms are interesting, too, because they're more like us than plants. Um, both of us depend on plants to collect solar energy and turn it into forms of carbon we can make use of in our bodies. So uh, we have this kinship with mushrooms. And um, obviously, there's, there's a lot of strong feelings about mushrooms because some of them are poisonous and can kill you. And, and the world is basically divided into mycophiles, Lovers of mushrooms and mycophobes, fear, fearers of mushrooms. In general, um, you know, different cultures tend to veer one way or the other. And we're pretty mycophobic uh, in America, and, and as people are in England. The Slavs are very mycophilic. Uh, the Russians love mushrooms. Um, and you can go around the world and, like, divide countries um, according to that distinction. Um, when you see a mushroom, you are seeing the equivalent of the fruit. Uh, It's like seeing the apple on a tree. 
uh, you have to infer the tree because the tree is underground and that the, uh, the, the mushroom itself is called the fruiting body. And so there's this whole underground network of mycelium, as you said, which is a, the one cell wide uh, strings uh, that uh, go out into the soil and surround the the roots of trees and penetrate the yeah. roots of trees. So when you scoop up a scoop of dirt, it's full those, of mycelium, and you can't always see it. Threads, uh, the white threads are, are mycelium. Yes, I've always looked at them and kind of thought, are these roots? What are these? No, you they're know? mushrooms. They're yeah. mushrooms. And so, um, and you see it, especially in a forest. You, a, a handful of forest soil brings up all these white threads. They're very hard to study because they break as soon as you remove them. So that's one of the reasons we don't know as much about mushrooms as we might. And they don't put out that um, that fruiting body until either their habitat is in trouble and they, they need to move somewhere else uh, and their spores get picked up on the wind. Like, like right now, I, I ju- a friend of mine was just in Yosemite uh, searching for morels, and he found all these morels where there had been fires last summer. And so when the forest dies is when the, uh, the, the morels who've been living underground in relationship to these trees, uh, very happily, without putting up any fruiting bodies, they're like, uh-oh, you know, our food source is uh, in trouble, and we have to go somewhere else. And they, so it's a kind of, it, it may be, a, I mean, we don't know for sure, but it may be this crisis. And then they kind of put spores in the air and... and it's how uh, they move their community. Basically, yeah, they're moving to a new place. And if they're there's refugees. no crisis, they stay underground? Yeah. I mean, they must reproduce somehow, so there must be a certain number of them, but mm-hmm. that, that flush of like lots of them, uh, in the case of fire morels, means that their, their habitat has been destroyed. You know, since Omnivore's Dilemma, I've been really interested in mushrooms, and that's when I learned about Paul Stamets. And uh, Paul um, is also very interested in, in psilocybin, and he had an important role in the history of psilocybin. When uh, These are the magic mushrooms. Um, in gen- when he went to college, he went to Evergreen State, and uh, that became this hub of mushroom research. He and a couple other guys and this professor of theirs, Michael Bug, um, uh, you know, were determined to, like, learn what they could about psilocybin. They were all, like, into it. And, uh, and people had thought it was from Central America. You had to go to southern Mexico to get mushrooms. But they started looking around the Pacific Northwest, and they found all these other species of psilocybin. Well, maybe they had all been brought here by hippies. It, it may be that there was a hippie <laughs> trail, um, but they were probably, they'd probably been here for a long time. And, and, and no one had noticed? Yeah, no one had noticed. They're they're really inconspicuous. Uh-huh. They're they're what is called in the mycology world LBMs, little brown mushrooms. They look like other mushrooms. They look like other mushrooms, which is a good argument for not picking them yourself because some of them uh, look like mushrooms that are fatal. Uh, oh, Gallerina is one that you know leads to a, a brutal death. And okay, looks... so kids, don't do this. No, no, don't do uh, this. I would never. Here we are. We are here. At the University of California at Berkeley, and uh, yeah, undergraduates, no. graduate students, and there are mushroom, there are psilocybin mushrooms that grow on this campus. If I've you're not told. an expert, don't, don't be out there picking them. No, right? no. Uh, I went mushroom hunting with Stamets to uh, uh, a place he asked me not to disclose, but it's at the mouth of the Columbia River, and um, uh, we were looking for a kind of psilocybe that he had actually identified and named. Uh, called Psilocybe azurescence. And um, it's apparently the most powerful psilocybin mushroom there is. It was only discovered in the last couple decades. It only has been found in this one location. Mm. And uh, so we had this wonderful uh, couple days, you know, in this uh, 
you know, in, staying in this yurt and hunting for these mushrooms. And I was really struck by the fact that we found most of them right near the yurts in this park rather than out in the wild. And uh, Paul said at some point, he's a very serious person, but he, 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 uh, he said one of the indicator species for psilocybe as a resins are Winnebago's. <laughs> And in other words, people yeah, come so to collect them. Yeah, so maybe they like people. Or they like people. seducing people. And like a lot of weedy species, they follow us around mm-hmm. because we drop their spores wherever we go. We this trail of pixie dust. You know, that any mushroom hunter is is leaving behind him. That's one of the reasons you find mushrooms so commonly on um, college campuses and in front of police stations. We're going to move along with the story, though, and there you are out in the yurt, and you collect. You do find these super potent magic mushrooms. Yes. Yeah. Very special. Which I was kind of afraid to take because Paul, apropos of once we'd found them, we were sitting around, we were drying them on the heater in the, uh, in the yurt, said, well, there's, they have a side effect some people don't like. I said, oh, yeah, what's that? Paralysis. What? (laughs) Well, it's temporary, but you know, some people, if they take a lot of them, they just can't move for a while, and that could be really bad if you're outside and the weather's bad. So I was, I was, I mean, this is one of the many trepidations I had. So I started well light with these. Yeah. So you didn't take them right then and there. No, we didn't uh, under difficult, potentially different, difficult weather circumstances. I'd like to pause for a moment to just talk about this issue of safety, actually. You know, I did um, Magic Mushrooms myself, actually in in anticipation. I knew you were working on this book and you're publishing it soon and we'd be talking. And I thought, well, I'll just, it's been a long time. I'll going to do some magic mushrooms. and I hope all my interviewers get this idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, and it, you know, it's many years ago, I had some great um, LSD trips. And so, so a few months ago, I, I did shrooms. It was a great experience. It wasn't a really high dose. Um, I'd like to go back. Now I want to do a higher dose. But the I did it up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. The next... And so I was just, you know, blotto out of it for hours, having a wonderful time, a lot of visual effects and, you know, a lot of deep thoughts. You were outside? Inside and outside. Inside. Oh. I was also indoors in a, with a, you know, it was a perfect situation with a, you know, window looking out at nature and a fireplace and right. and a good person to be with. And all these things were just perfect. So it was great. But the next morning, um, I... Uh, as I drove into town, I saw all these signs up going, maximum fire danger, maximum fire danger. This is you know, not far from the time when we had these huge wildfires in California. Well, we'd been up in a little wooden cabin very high up in the mountains at the top of a very tortuous trail. And I realized, oh, well, holy, you know, if I had known that we were in, in, and of course, the drought conditions, everything very dry. So if I'd known that there were, I was in a place and time where a high degree of risk of a wildfire, I don't think it would have been such a good idea. No. And I probably would have been going, oh, wow, look at those beautiful flames. (laughs) 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 And so it did make me think a lot about this issue of making sure that you're you're safe. I'd love you to address that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, these, they're very powerful drugs and people do get into trouble and they you know, debilitate you, you know, from dealing with crises and and uh, things like wildfires or, or any number of other things. And people do stupid things on mushrooms or on LSD. They walk into traffic. They Well, they drive cars. They drive cars, which is absolutely nuts. But um, so there, I think, you know, people, 
it wasn't just urban legends that people got into trouble on psychedelics in the 60s and ended up in emergency rooms. Um, some people have psychotic breaks on, on these drugs. Um, would they without them? Maybe. I mean, they were probably people predisposed to schizophrenia, and this was a trigger. Um, that can happen. Um, and, and people can have, uh, you know, terrifying experiences, so-called bad trips, um, made worse by the environment they're in, that there's nobody to help them, that they're uh, in, in a public place and, and feeling incredibly paranoid. I mean, there, there's so many rabbit holes you can go down that are really negative. And so it, one, of the, one of the points that I, one of the things I discovered in this book is that especially as you're older, when you're, you're a little more risk-averse than the 20-year-old who, who thinks he's immortal, that um, doing these drugs, if you are going to do them in a, in a very controlled, regulated environment, such as with a guide. Um, in the clinical trials, there are always two people with you. You're very carefully prepared uh, in advance. They give you a, what they call flight instructions to tell you how to deal with negative things that come up. Um, they encourage you never to try to turn your back on something scary that you see. It's, it's sort of like seeing a mountain lion. You know, you're not supposed to run because it'll chase you. You're supposed to stand your ground, look big, and try to scare it. And if you see a monster on a psychedelic trip, you should walk right up to it and say, what are you doing in my mind and what do you have to teach me? And if you do that, rather than turning and trying to get away from it, it will morph into something much more positive. And, and that seems to happen. Or, or the general advice to surrender to whatever's happening. Don't fight it as you feel your ego kind of being reduced to confetti. Don't try to put it back together. But how can people find a guide? What are you going to do when everybody comes to you and <laughs> <Yeah>. asks? <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to... I can't be a, you know, a, a broker for, for guides, obviously. And um, the guides I work with, I'm, you know taking enormous precautions to protect and, and and I would, by introducing people to them that I didn't know, would be doing the opposite. Um, you know, I think you have to ask around in your community. I, I'll give you a couple ideas. There are psychedelic societies now in a hundred cities. They've popped up in the last three or four years, all this, like mushrooms, I mean, all of a sudden. And these are not drug exchanges. People go there to talk about psychedelic experience, not to have them. And they have guests and events and things like that. They're like clubs. And they're, uh, I actually, I'm listing all hundred of them and contact names on my website um, when I relaunch it uh, under a resources page. So you can go there. And I've never been to a psychedelic society, but I wouldn't be surprised if you found people there who could introduce you to guides. Um, and so that's one. Uh, another thing people can do is there's a, a, a non-pharmacological um, psychedelic experience called holotropic breathwork. This is a, a, a breathing technique that was developed by Stanislav Grof, who was an important LSD psychiatrist before, when it was still legal. And after it was made illegal, he developed drawing on yogic traditions and Native American traditions came up with this a breathing exercise that in more than half of people who try it will induce uh, a trance-like experience that's very psychedelic. And I did it, and it, it's, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, talk about having a, mm -hmm. another mode of consciousness just right over there. Yeah, just breathing. Accessible strictly through a breathing, a pattern of breath. Um, the kind of people involved with holotropic breathwork workshops know psychedelic guides. It's, there's a lot of overlap in those communities. Mm -hmm. um, so 
So, you know, if you're intrepid, you, you will find people. And find your own path. Don't go to Michael Pollan. No, <laughs> please don't go to me. Please don't come to but, me. I can't you know, Michael, do that. You, this is, we are talking about an illegal activity, too. Let right? us not forget. Yes. And uh, don't, do you worry a little bit that, um, you know, you're now really out there with breaking the law? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, in, in this book, I describe several uh, experiences I had. I'm um, pretty vague about where they took place and when they took place. So they're, I don't think that they're very usable as, as uh, evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they arrested Timothy Leary. Maybe they'll come for you. What, do you think about that? I, I don't think that that's realistic. I mean, Timothy Leary really became uh, an obsession of Richard Nixon's. You know, Richard Nixon called him the most dangerous man in America. Maybe now you'll be the most dangerous. Uh, <laughs> look at me. Come on. <laughs> well, so, you're not You're not an evangelist. Well, maybe you are an evangelist. Well, I'm not an evangelist, actually. I don't know. I, I'm an evangelist for the research. I, I think it's really important. It needs to happen. But in terms of advocacy, you know, I, I mean... With food work, I became an advocate over time. It became almost disingenuous to pretend I didn't have strong feelings about where the food system should go, even though I began as a journalist. And I'm still at that point on the learning curve here where I, I, I don't feel confident advocating for the legalization so you, of these drugs. Or um, I see. The only thing I feel confident about is that this research is very promising. It's yielding really important new therapies and important insights into the mind. And it would be a shame if we stopped that research, as we did back in the 60s and 70s when there was this backlash. I mean, look, prohibition makes people do, you know, unusual things, strange things. Um, Doesn't ultimately work very well. Um, And, uh, you know, I I would... uh, Right now, we have very little evidence that the, that this is on their their radar. They've got much bigger drug problems to deal with, uh, opiate addiction. Right, uh, and this may help with opiate addiction, possibly. Well, that's kind of one of the uh, exciting things, that some psychedelics do appear to help with opiate addiction. And it seems like counterintuitive that, uh, that you would use a drug to treat a drug addiction. Um, but, in fact, one of the earliest applications of, of, of uh, LSD and psilocybin in the 50s was to treat alcohol addiction, and, and the, the results were good. And there's a big study going on now to study psilocybin and alcohol addiction. People have these narratives about themselves they get stuck in, that I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy of love, that you know, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a, a bad person, um, uh, all the kinds of, of, of negative narratives. Oh, I that, need a drink. Or I need a drink, or I can't live without the bottle or Mm -hmm. this drug. Um, All those narratives you get to see afresh and realize, oh, they're just narratives. I mean, there's a a distancing on the scene of your own life that happens or can happen in a well-guided trip that allows you to uh, break through. Well, in the time that we have left, I would really love to uh, spend it delving into your actual personal mystical experiences, what you really experienced yourself. Um, And, you know, as you said, your book is very layered and you go back and forth between this very analytical mode that, you know, we've been in that a lot. But at other times, you just surrendered to experience. So Mm -hmm. when you went with your wife back to a a writing cabin that you used to... um, that you, you, you spent a lot of time in working. Yeah, that I built. It was the subject of my second book. Yeah, yes. very important space to me. Right, and what a setting, right? Yeah. And in a garden that you had built as well, yeah. right? And, uh, but that was still in some sense thriving. 
Um, I would love if you would read at some length some passages from your chapter on mushrooms. This is when you took those very mushrooms that you'd that gotten I with found, Stamets yes, right. and that you didn't take at the time you collected them, but you let them dry and you took them to this cabin with your wife and took them there. Okay, I haven't read this aloud before, so here goes. When at last I arrived at the writing house, I stretched out on the daybed, something I hardly ever took the time to do in all the years when I was working here so industriously. I wrote like three of my books here. Uh, the bookshelves had been emptied and the place felt abandoned, a little sad. From where I lay, I could see over my toes to the window screen and beyond that to the grid of an arbor that was now densely woven with the twining vines of what had become a venerable old climbing hydrangea, a petiolaris. I had planted the hydrangea decades ago in hopes of creating just this sort of intricately tangled prospect. Backlit by the late afternoon sunlight streaming in, its neat round leaves completely filled the window, which meant you gazed out at the world through the fresh green scrim that they formed. It seemed to me these were the most beautiful leaves I had ever seen. It was as if they were emitting their own soft green glow, and it felt it, and it felt like a kind of privilege to gaze out at the world through their eyes, as it were, as the leaves drank up the last drafts of sunlight, transforming those photons into new matter. A plant's eye view of the world, it was that, and for real. But the leaves were also looking back at me, fixing me with this utterly benign gaze. I could feel their curiosity, and what I was certain was an attitude of utter benevolence toward me and my kind. <laughs> You know, um, there are so many beautiful descriptions of mystical moments that you experience in your number of trips that you take during the book. I think I love that one so much. It's also the first description in the book. It's very beautifully written, and but also because it reminded me of the best mystical experience that I ever had on LSD years ago when I fell in love with a tree and the tree fell in love with me and we <laughs> kind of committed to each other <laughs> for an eternal love and poured, you know, kind of an incredible kind of, uh, you know, reaction to the the sun pouring through the, the lit green leaves. Yeah. And um, for me, I'm, it was kind of a happy experience because it was so reproducible. And your book really brought it back for me. Reading your book itself, you can get high reading your book. <laughs> and I did. And, um, and that's very safe. Yeah, that's super <laughs> safe. And you, you, you can be reminded, and uh, mystical experiences like these, this can be re-triggered. So for me, it's always been a kind of a great thing that my great you know, kind of peak mystical experience was with, was merging with a tree because there's always a tree around, you know. Right. And if I have a little bit of time and it's a sunny day, I can often sniff it, you know, uh-huh. again, sense it again. I, I feel exactly that way and that remembering it and thinking about it as I've been doing in the past couple of months, especially after I took the magic mushrooms mm-hmm. in anticipation of reading your book, um, and then reading your book, which, as I keep saying, is trippy in itself, uh, safe, a safe trip. Um, it, it, it did also not only make me remember it and take it out of the box, but kind of recall the uh, the sense of integration that I had for a while afterwards and bring that back and think about it more in terms of how did that change me and what do I want to keep with me from how I think it did change me. So yeah. 
Yeah. I, well, you know, remembering these things are how we exercise those neural circuits that were created during the experience. Yeah. And the more you remember it, the firmer it becomes. Yeah. It, it was a, I would say it was a deeply reassuring experience that made me feel much more at peace. Hmm. And that was... That's uh, wonderful. Yeah, a nice thing. So um, let's just, uh, again, you know, we, we should... Um, want to cover the things, the remaining things, I, I think it's important to just describe to the listeners uh, what you took. So you you started out with these magic, these special magic mushrooms mm-hmm. that most people probably yeah, won't be able to Yeah, that's the first get. experience I had in the, um, uh, you know, with, with an unguided experience with my wife. Right. And, uh, then... And, the, and then I had a series of guided experiences. Uh, the first one with LSD... Uh, with a male guide who was this wonderful man, and uh, I felt very comfortable with him, but for various reasons didn't have a full dose. Uh, so, although I, I had just a... want to say, and you know, you've, you've touched on this, but that you, it was a relief to you to work with a guide because you didn't feel you had to be responsible for anything anymore. You know, like yeah. perhaps worrying about your wife or. You yeah, know... I mean, one of the things that this first experience that we I just read from was, uh, you know, my wife was on a slightly different page for part of the experience, and she got a little bit freaked out. We were, uh, after we drank the tea that we'd made, we walked down this this dirt road near our house, and and she, the drug came on very fast for her, and she was like, I got to get home. You know, she, and she got very nervous about running into a neighbor or something like that. She wanted to be indoors, and you wanted to be outdoors. Yeah, and so we were in very different spaces, and so she stayed indoors, and she put a cold towel over her face, and she was very happy, and she spent a lot of time staring at the patterns on the coffee table, and she had a very interesting visual experience, um, She's an artist, and uh, I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be communing with the plants. and uh, But I felt like as I, uh, I made this 100-yard walk out to my writing house, I kept like, i got to check on Judith. i got to go back, make sure she's okay. Um, and that, that was taking me out of the experience uh, repeatedly. And that's that was kind of like, okay, I get what this guided thing is about, mm. that you can really sink down into your own thing and not worry about, anybody else, not worry about your body, not worry about the, you know, the doorbell ringing. Um, they, you know, to use the lingo of the time, they create a safe space. And, uh, and you need a safe space if you're going to put down all your normal defenses. Um, you know, you're disarmed. Uh, and uh, um, so that sold me on the idea of uh, of working with guides, and then I went on to do. Um, so so then you went and you did LSD. Which I did an LSD went, with right? one and holotropic breath work with one guide, and then mm-hmm. I did a, a higher dose psilocybin trip with another guide. Higher dose, even though the first ones were those really special mushrooms, were were yeah. the higher dose also those super duper mushrooms. No, that was on uh, normal ones, I think. But uh, just a higher psilocybin dose. cubensis. Mm-hmm. But I was trying essentially to simulate the dose being used in the trials. What do you think is about. a good dose? You know, it's impossible to say with mushrooms because the um, uh, any given mushroom, depending on how it was grown or where it was grown, can have a different intensity by an order of magnitude. This is something that worries me. Yeah, it is an issue. And that's one of the reasons uh, good di- guides will start. I mean, they know the strength of the mushrooms that they're giving you because they've worked with them a lot. But in general, start with a little and then build up. Um, you can every half hour take take uh, you know account of where you are and then take a booster instead of don't don't start with a lot. Uh, I don't want to get too specific about doses because it's it's a really uh, 
with mushrooms, it's a very messy topic because we don't really know what's. You know, when they're doing well, the research, they have they, they have a simulated, they have a synthetic version of psilocybin, and they know exactly that right, or, you're getting 25 yeah. milligrams. But no, I mean, even with cannabis now, it's a very dicey. What yeah, you never the know. Dose you never know, really and that's why you should always a big start. Concern. Yeah, you should always start uh, start light. Yeah, and then okay. after that was this um, toad experience, five uh, meo DMT. Toad venom. Toad venom. I can't believe you did that. I can't either. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> I don't think I would ever want to do toad venom. And I'm not eager to do it again. Um, <laughs> it was uh, So there is a, a psychedelic that is the smoked venom of the Sonoran Desert Toad. Ooh. Makes you wonder, like, boy, the ingenuity of humankind to figure that out. Yeah, who did that first? Yeah, I know. I know. Mil- you have to milk the, the you venom You milk sack. the toad. I didn't do this, oh. but the person who gave it to me, um, uh, they basically, it doesn't hurt the toad. They squeeze this <laughs> gland on the side of the toad and on its legs, and, and, and they collect the spray on a sheet of glass, dries overnight into this, um, uh, it looks like brown sugar. And then they put it in a vaporizer, and uh, you take one puff, and you are just obliterated. You gave birth to yourself. <sighs> I did a lot of things. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, it was, a, okay. it was a terrifying experience because... Um, not only was there no ego, there was no nothing. I mean, everything, material reality had been uh, taken apart and reduced to this pure storm of energy that raged in my head. I disappeared, and, and I didn't have a vantage. I had nowhere to stand. It was just like storm, Category 5 storm. I felt like I was in the middle of an atomic explosion. Um, God. And I, it was terrifying, and I kept saying to myself, surrender, 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 and nothing helped. And so it was sheer terror for, um, uh, and the best thing about this trip is it only lasts 20 minutes. And and the second best thing about it is that as you come down, which happens very rapidly, uh, and you feel your body recon- reconstituting itself. You, you and, said that it was like post-it notes fluttering out. Yes, I was, I was, a, I was confetti. I was just confetti <laughs> and in a windstorm. The post-it notes reassembled themselves and they back, come back into together. a body. And, it was, and, and that moment was ecstatic. Oh, um, wow. That, yeah. Oh, my so, well, God. I there's think you'd a be floor. so glad to be back in yourself again. Not only that I existed, but anything existed. Uh-huh. I would have been happy just to have anything exist. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not eager to do it again. It's funny. I told that story in a, to a, in a group of people who were very experienced uh, psychonauts, and, uh, and there was this man at the far end of the table uh, in his 40s, and he looked at me after I told the story because they'd asked me, did I have any bad experiences? I said, yeah. And he said, I know your problem. You did not take enough. (laughs) (laughs) So, Michael Pollan, are you a different and perhaps better person now after having gone through all of these experiences? Well, I know things I didn't know before about myself. and and, uh, No, but are you different? Not do you know things, but are you you different? Spiritually, um, psychologically, are you different? In this sense, I, I do think I, it's funny. That, you know, you're not the first person to ask this question, and as with all important questions, I put it to Judith, my wife, <laughs> to get her take. <laughs> exactly. On it. Who could be a big, greater? Yeah. Expert? Who's a better student than your your spouse of of you and whether you're changing? And Judith had a lot of trepidations when I started this. Yeah, I bet she was encouraging to do something, a new subject, um, but she was like, I was going to have a big experience that she wasn't going to be part of which has seldom happened. Well, she was part of it to, to an extent. Yeah, she was. She wanted to be part of it. And that's one of the reasons I think she did want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then you went places she didn't go. I could see yes. that she would have some right. trepidations about that on and, many levels. 
And so she, you know, I said, what, what's your worry? And she said, well, my worry is you'll change. And um, what she didn't consider is that I might change for the better. Uh, so, um, and in her view... Well, she was afraid that you would be damaged in some way by it, perhaps. Yeah, or I'd come out of it with a different set of values or interests. And or maybe it'd be like it might, stoner. It, yeah, it could like. be destabilizing to a marriage if one person does something potentially transformative, right? Um, so in the end, I think she was very encouraged by the kinds of changes she observed, which were, you know, subtle. I mean, she, I mean that I was uh, more open, uh, less defensive. Um, and the example she cited was, um, I mean, there's a backstory to this book that has to do with the fact for much of the time I was researching it, my dad was dying of cancer. And, um, and that's one of the reasons I got interested in these tales of people who had cancer, who had this very, had this experience that helped them to die. And, um, uh, I was very, um, present during the whole period. I mean, I, I, one of the reasons we've been on the East Coast is so I could be available to him and visit more often. And, uh, and then I was with him and my mother the last, you know, 10 days or so, uh, you know, in the apartment with them. And, um, she said, you know, one of the big things our ego defends us against is death. Right, it's it's about self-preservation, and it can keep us from experiencing the death of others. It can keep us from thinking about it too much. It can it can keep us from being open to people who need it, need our you know our help. And um, she felt that I was much more open to the experience and to him uh, and available than she thought I would have been before. Mm. Is that true or not? I don't know. I don't have a control. Right. Um, but it feel it sounds right. It sounds right. I, I felt like I, I surprised myself a little bit that mm -hmm. I was um, just kind of very present for what was happening, and it was very hard to be very present. Um, mm. And I think you know that's a kind of uh, lowered defenses. Um, and I think that's one of the things these things these these drugs can help people do, which is kind of get their egos a little more under control and not let them drive your reactions to everything. That's very profound. May I ask you, did you uh, offer any kind of uh, drugs to your father as he faced death? No. I, I, you know, I thought about broaching that, and for, for a whole lot of reasons, um, it didn't feel right. And it didn't feel that I could, and I didn't know that I could assure the right kind of experience mm. that I didn't know a guide where he lived. I couldn't get him into the trials. He was too old. He was already 88. Um, and I, and he had some, uh, you know, he, he was, he was losing a step cognitively the last couple of years because of all the treatments he'd been through. And, and I didn't know how that would work with the experience. Somebody who, who, you know, whose memory was really faulty and, and I'm not sure he realized every day that he was dying. I, you know, and I don't know how he was uh, processing the experience, frankly. And one of the things that was going on was I was able to have these intense experiences, uh, discussions about death with these volunteers in the Hopkins and NYU trials that I really couldn't have with him because he didn't want to go there. Uh, he didn't want to talk about it. I, interesting, because, of course, and you write about this in your book, um, there are people who are facing, who have cancer, terminal cancer, and are facing death, where 
psilocybin or LSD has helped them enormously, enormously yeah. to uh, overcome their fear of death. Yes, and remove their fear in many cases, give them a sense, change their sense of what it means to die. Um, but it was, it was a, 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 I just, I don't know that it was a process that would have worked for him, given where he was. Um, oh, I understand. It's and just the fears that, that he probably has about, or had about psychedelics. Um, it, no, it would have been, it sounds clear that it would have been the wrong thing to try to introduce something that I think wasn't it was. coming I, up yeah. in a more natural way for him. I also didn't get the sense that he had a great deal of fear. Um, mm. I don't know exactly how he processed it, but this was, he, you know, he was very uncomfortable toward the end, but he was also incredibly loving and present to us. And I don't know that he was uh, terrorized by what was happening. Um, I, I, I wish I knew more. I, I wish I knew more. I mean, everything got said, but not that. Um, you know, he didn't really talk about death. And uh, and that was generational to some extent. But I will offer that the fact that you yourself had had some experiences that perhaps made you less fearful of death yes. and allowed you to be more present, that that in itself was a gift to oh, this, him. Well, I, you know, I hope you're right. I mean, that's a... Um, I mean, the fact that I had spent two years, you know, thinking about this a lot. I mean, the whole experience, I had a lot of, a lot of my psychedelic experiences dealt with death. I mean, that was a theme that kept coming up. And dealt with your family. And dealt with my family. Your, your and, closest relations. Yeah. And so it was a period in my life where I was, you know, I, I moved out to California. I left everybody behind and I was kind of reconnecting with them. And this, this particular, there's a reason you pick up a subject at a certain time. And I didn't realize till after the fact, actually a friend a close friend read the book and said, wow, your father's on every page. And I was like, really? I, well, not quite, but he's present. No, but he's very present. And all the people you love are present. And there's a strong sense that these experiences deepened your love bonds with the yeah. people that you love most. Yeah. And my sisters, too. And my mm. son. Yeah. And your mother. And Judith. Yeah. yeah. So, And I did dedicate the book to my dad before I really thought about all this. Um, I knew it was the last book I could dedicate to him. Mm. And... It, I knew it meant a lot to him, and he's and he saw that I had dedicated to it before he died. But, but there's no question that uh, I would not have written the same book ten years ago. Um, and it was it is a product of that period in my life, mm -hmm. and and of all the changes mm. that you've been going through. Yeah. Well, it's a very beautiful book and deeply felt, and I consider it a great gift. Oh, thank you, Dieter. Thanks, Michael. We've been listening to Michael Pollan in conversation with Deirdre English. This has been On Mike, a podcast presentation of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Technical facilities for On Mike are underwritten by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation. Our producers are Kat Schuknecht and Lee Mengistu. I'm Dean Ed Wasserman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us next time. <laughs>